Hello, and welcome to today's edition of Employment Matters, a podcast series brought to you by the Employment Law Alliance, the world's largest and most prestigious network of labor and employment lawyers from the best law firms in the world. In this series, we tackle important issues facing HR professionals with regard to labor and employment law and the impact these issues have on the ever-changing global workforce. I'm your host, Peter Waltz. I recently had a chance to sit down with several of our members at the recent ELA annual meeting in Toronto to talk about key issues impacting employment law in their jurisdictions. Let's hear what they had to say. Rex Murphy, he's a national broadcaster. Uh, He is from one of our... uh, our furthest east province, Newfoundland. Um, he was born in St. John's, Newfoundland, before it was part of Confederation. Newfoundland joined Confederation and became a Canadian province in 1949. He attended Memorial University and then was a Rhodes Scholar and attended Oxford. He has a storied career in Canadian media, including uh, 20 years hosting the cross-country checkup on CBC. Uh, millions of listeners, and on 9-11, he had 63,000 listeners queued to trying to get in. Um, so on a weekly basis, there'd be 15,000 lined up. And so this was a pretty incredible uh, population, given the number of talk shows and uh, the opportunities for people to be calling in. He's authored a couple of books, including A Matter of Opinion. When we're talking about his legacy, it started pretty early on. When he was 17, he left Newfoundland's an island in the middle of the North Atlantic. I'm fond of it. I live there. I commute back and forth to Toronto. So I know that when you're 17 and you're leaving the province for the first time, back in the 60s, it was a big deal. So he goes up to Montreal, speaks out against the premier of Newfoundland, His mom is listening to a radio in a small northern community, and here's the premier of Newfoundland tell him he's not allowed to come home, (laughs) which is incredible. And she, of course, because it's power and it's the 60s, she believed it, and she was quite upset. So when he finally called home on Sunday, he understood that his mom thought that he was expelled from Newfoundland. Um, It didn't stick. He's come back time and again, including as a result of this engagement he had with the premier of Newfoundland back in 1966. He got free tuition for the students at Memorial University, and they were all paid a salary to attend universities. He was pretty quick to uh, start forming an, an, uh, an appetite to express his opinions. He is one of the rare Canadians who is not an apologist for his opinion. You won't hear him say, I'm sorry. You might hear him use other words, um, but he said he's not going to use those words today. So the topic today is Canada, the U.S., politics and sort of a, a commentary on what's happening. Thank you very much for the introduction. I, hadn't, I had not planned to uh, bring up any of the family history during this thing, but that particular story is, is true. I know that I have a, a fair percentage of people who are Americans in this audience So I don't expect you to have any understanding whatsoever of the early premiers of Newfoundland and Labrador. If any of you do, there's a couple of gold stars outside the room, but I don't expect they'll be collected. Uh, All you have to understand about Joey Smallwood, if you were to put him in the frame of current context, is that he would be considerably shorter than Mr. Trump and had absolutely no hair which takes away the two defining characteristics of the current villain. But he was, uh, he was very preemptory. He was a man that had very, very small ideas about democracy. Smallwood's idea of a caucus meeting was to have a second thought. <laughs> and most of his cabinets were held in his head, and even those weren't particularly well attended. <laughs> but it was, if you think back, and I don't know why I'm doing this, I really don't, um, Maybe it's just strict nerves, but if you think back to about 1966 in Newfoundland especially, because as was noted, uh, Canada didn't have the benefit and protection of an association with Newfoundland until 1949, when we very visibly took them under our wing and they've prospered ever since. (laughs) But at that period, if a Mr. Smallwood had said anything, uh, it was a great terror and the story told there, I now come back to it. My mother, quite literally, uh, heard this on the television station. Smallwood had the ability to command time whenever he wanted it, 
which is something like CNN during the last election and another politician I could name. But in any case, when she saw this going on, uh, she, retreated the tele she retreated to the bedroom and stayed there for the full week. But it even became worse than that when I finally ended up working for the CBC in Newfoundland. For the first two years that I was on air, she refused to watch the local news and thus became more informed than any of the rest of her neighbors. <laughs> uh, I want to say thank you very much for the invitation to be here. I'm truly cognizant uh, that 70% are not from this country, and I'd like to throw out another biographical detail in case you haven't been bored quite sufficiently already. Uh, I worked for a couple of years on the American base in Newfoundland, Argentia. Those of you with, with some historical memory will know that uh, Churchill worked a great leases for bases, uh, bases, yeah, bases for destroyers deal, and five of the bases that were traded to arm Britain at that particular time were located in my province, and the biggest of them was Argentia, and it lasted until about 1973. My father worked there from 1942. I grew up uh, off base, obviously, but a lot of the American kids uh, on that base used to come off base to take advantage, believe it or not, of the Newfoundland school as opposed to the one on base. And when I finished university, uh, the American captain there, he decided that American kids get floated around from base to base to base, Iceland one day, Bermuda another day, Germany, Japan, Newfoundland, and that they were hopscotched around the globe without any contact with the countries with where they were inhabiting. And so the purpose of the th hiring me was to bring them out uh, and to introduce them a bit to Newfoundland and a lot to Canada. I'm giving you all of this only for one reason, is that I have perhaps a little more than most Canadians because of my own father's experience all his life, and mine as well. I've had frequent collision, uh, usually social, uh, with Americans, and even though I lived in a very, very small town, I came to know Americans fairly well over that particular period. And so some of the stuff I'm saying now, one thing I did learn from it, by the way, there was particularly, there was particularly evident in those years, in the 60s and the 70s, up here in Canada, that there was a certain wing of Canadian opinion, and it's by no means all, but that carried around a great superiority chip that somehow or other Americans were, were vile and you were this and you were that and you were nothing but the driven capitalist that had no soul. All of which, of course, was quite nothing but tosh. Uh, Americans are neither worse nor better than Canadians and Canadians are neither worse nor better than Americans. And in any given circumstance, they come out in the wash pretty much the same. So I'd like that understood as a, as a common thing before I go into any other stuff. I realized that uh, the politics of the last couple of days, the politics of last week, are probably most prominent in your mind. And if, as I say, after this rather brief uh, talk, if you want to go into the details of particulars, I'd be more than happy to do so. I also understand that you have a remarkable uh, leader uh, in, in the presidency, and that American politics has taken a turn of considerable intensity. Now, Mr. Trump, it's not my place as an outsider to talk to clear on the substance of American politics, but Mr. Trump, even in a kindly description, could be understood basically as a bull that comes equipped with his own china shop. <laughs> and I watched the election, as everybody else did, with some considerable fascination. I've, all, I've had a long time envy of, of American politics because, apart from anything else, leaving aside questions of either morality or whatever, I mean, an American general election is like a, a full-scale orgy, uh, only deprived of the ultimate possibility of any sensual gratification. <laughs> Whereas up here, ours are just pathetically dull. I was around when Bill Clinton was, was frolicking with, with such abandon with Monica Lewinsky, and I looked for the parallels here in Canada. And I, I know that some Canadians will remember, we had a deputy prime minister named Herb Gray, who did his best to live up to both of his names. And the only thing we could parallel between Monica and Bill was the idea that occasionally Jean Chrétien, who was then prime minister, would go off to some of the alcoves of the parliamentary library 
to look up the BNA Act with Herb Gray. This was not the stuff of high scandal, I assure you. And in a certain way, again, if you're from Toronto, and God help us if you are, if you're from Toronto, uh, you'll realize that the experience that Americans are now having with their exceptional uh, chief executive perhaps owes not just a little to this city. About five or six years ago, we had a very interesting mayor ourselves. That was Mayor Ford. And he had a manner of conducting politics that may have been the germ or the seed for some of the things that you're seeing in your country down south. As we know, he had considerable appetites. Uh, Kentucky Fried Chicken was heavy on the list. And there were certain dabblings with, with drink and even some of the more, call them exotic drugs. And uh, I, I, To this day, I, I can recall driving to the airport late at night, 2 and 3 in the morning, and you see these huge billboards. And on the billboard, you read, it's 3 a.m. Do you know where your mayor is? <laughs> it's true. Uh, <laughs> anyway, it, he added some interest to the situation, but there's one thing about him, and this, I'll come back to this. There was one thing about him, he did have a repertoire, let's not cover it, of just straightforward vices, Okay. Uh, overindulgence. But here's what I want you to remember more than anything, and I experienced it personally. Doug Ford, he has passed since then, had a tremendous ability to seemingly connect, not seemingly, to connect with so many and such a spectrum of all of Toronto. Now, there were those, and they were chiefly, by the way, the more sophisticated class, who had absolutely nothing but scorn for him. He was ungainly, he was certainly unfit, and he indulged in some scabrous behavior, and at times, especially caught on camera, saying some truly awful old things. But he had another set of qualities, even buried within this kind of Falstaffian register. And those qualities were these, that if someone called him. Remember, now he's a mayor, and this is a big city, even by U.S. standards. Doug Ford would make the call back. And it didn't matter who you were. You didn't have to be, you know, the superintendent of the University of Toronto or something. It could be anyone, anywhere. And he would visit the houses of some of the people who called him. And he would go into the neighborhoods that everybody talks about and decries, or what can we do? But Ford would just stumble in there in all his girth and engage. And it was one of the things that I encountered. I was at the CBC, which I should explain to Americans is kind of like your PBS without the sensationalism. <laughs> or, or NPR on a really, really calm day. <laughs> CBC is the temple of political correctness, the Jerusalem site of all that cannot be said. So he didn't have a lot of sympathetic audience in there. But everywhere I went, I'm not, I'm not making this up. Uh, I didn't have a car, so jumping into cabs all the time, going up to malls, and especially people who were fresh to Canada, you know, India, Africa, smaller states, Jamaica, you'd jump in the car and you would not start the conversation. It would just come out. Oh, that Mr. Ford, that Mr. Ford, he is, he is my mayor. And what I am saying is that there was a great affection because of an intuition on, on a visceral level that despite all the ugliness that surrounded some of his personal persona and despite all the controversy, he was on the late night talk shows and they were making fun of him to his face. But nonetheless, this man generated some, uh, an empathy, we use the word too easily, an empathy that had depth. And he never, he never saw himself as beyond the people that he was serving. And it was quite amazing. He, I do not think there has been a storm about a public figure and his behavior, and that includes Mr. Trump, that in concentrated form could rival that which came over the head of, of Mayor Ford. And it was always my question when dealing with Mayor Ford, not to see the obvious, but what's in this man that more than any other standard politician seems to have a genuine relationship, a genuine rapport, a connection with everyday citizens. 
So as I may, again, lightly pointed out that he may have been the pioneer for some of the adventures that are now going on at the top of American politics, I also want to, I mainly want to stress that the surface wasn't the whole story and that that man had some quality that we should look for more and more in the politicians and that the war that's now going on, which I will come to, the war that's going on now in the States and to some degree here, there's messages there from him. But before I go there, I have another story where about 18 years or so from, or 17, from the great moment when uh, the towers were attacked and the towers came down and all the planes that were in the air were suspended. Some of you are aware of the Broadway play now, Come From Away, which told of the reception of so many of the American citizens in particular that were forced to land uh, at Gander, Newfoundland on that day. I'm not going to tell a whole long story. I'm just going to pick one, uh, one anecdote out of it. But I want to make a point again that is connected to the point I made about Mr. Ford. Just to set the stage, you will remember, it was a gross attack. It got everybody by surprise. And nobody was more deprived of information than the people that were on those planes that had been called back from the north, from the halfway across the Atlantic, and over 31 or 32 of them ended up in Gander, Newfoundland. And of course, they had to park on the airport for a long while, 11 or 12 hours, deprived of news, uh, only half items getting through. And then at the end of the day, a stream of old buses wheeled its way onto Gander Airport that looked like they had come out of some Dukes of Hazard set. And they ferried the, what I call the lucky ones, to the great metropolitan hotels of Gander. I always test the classy hotels by the, by the washroom sinks, like the one here this morning. If you know how to use the tap, you're in Holiday Inn. But if you stand there for five minutes waving at it like some berserk magician, you're in a really good hotel. <laughs> now in Gander, you just point at the hose. The lucky ones got to go to such splendid accommodations as the Albatross Motel. And for those of you who are not aware, the Albatross is an emblem of malign flight. The perfect thing to have on that particular day. The rest, the overflow, were put on the last three buses and shuffled out of Gander, which is in Newfoundland a kind of Paris or New York, population 6,000. And they got carted off to Gambo, which is a remote settlement of mainly unemployed, as it happened, fishermen of about 600 people. And they went down this dirt road with the alders banging against the side of the yellow bus, and some guy in the front speaking in a language that they had never heard, and they were beginning to wonder whether it would be better to be back in New York at that moment than heading God knows where. I'm only telling one anecdote. They got the gambo. They were met by a Salvation Army woman in full uniform. Not the Statue of Liberty. This is the Statue of Repression. She decided right away that she was going to separate the sheep from the goats. And in case you're unfamiliar, goats are the men. So she stuck the men in the high school gymnasium, a high school laboratory on the floor, an empty room, had no lab, lab equipment, and there was a picture of an IBM 380 laptop from about nine years ago taken out of a Newsweek magazine plastered on the wall. And the women were put in the Salvation Army Citadel itself, a three-foot thick concrete fort to save them from the lusts of the men over in the high school. Anyway, there's a whole lot of stories came out of it. Great hospitalities were executed. Miracles of friendship were made over the next four or five days. But there are so many stories, I only want to tell one. This was the most peculiar in many ways of all of them. It involved two young people who'd flown from England. They were in love. They had been in love for quite some time. And contrary to the spirit of the age, this will 
probably test your credulity. They had not sampled. They had not sampled the carnal possibilities of either of them. They remained in a state that is possibly unknown to the modern ear, but in ancient times was called chastity. Have you heard of it? <laughs> but it is true, they did. I never did plumb how it was that they reached that. But they were planning to make up for it. Because the idea was to go to Las Vegas, hire a, a troop of Albanian small people, various horses, some other animals, and get an Elvis impersonator at the chapel, and then book into a suite and see what adventures awaited them. But now you see where they are. He's over on a linoleum floor, staring up at a picture of an IBM 380 laptop. And she's overguarded by the great wolf of the Salvation Army inside of three feet of concrete, looking at the Salvation Army Christmas bell. Anyway, two people in the community, this is Gambo, 600 people, heard about this, and George and Madge, and they, they, they thought it was wrong. And George said to Madge one night, she said, you know those two young people over there? She said, they're separated. George, you know, he says, that's not good. Don't, George said, you know, he said, when I look back on it, he said, I think I remember, he said, I think I remember it was a lot of fun. And she looked back on him and she said, well, it might have been for you. But nonetheless, they buried their differences. They said they're going to release these two people from their forced exile from each other. They did. This is true. They went over, they got him. Instead of Las Vegas, they brought him to the backyard of their own house, which basically was two or three leaves of grass between two extremely large rocks. It wasn't Las Vegas. And the Salvation Army lady herself undertook the marriage ceremony. And by this time, of course, the groom was nothing but a swollen, purple-headed monster walking backward just to preserve the horrors of being seen in a perpetually rampant state. And the bride was so agitated with want that she could be barely made to speak the matrimonial words. However, the matrimony was concluded and they were given the house of the old couple. They went to the other places. And then for three days, the seismographs on the south coast of Newfoundland were registering strange peaks and highs. Uh, the windows of the house were variously inflating and deflating. The roof popped off a couple of times. And it was thought that if any, any further adventures were going, that possibly it would lose its foundation. At the end of three days, having added new chapters to the Kama Sutra, and having extended the range of human gymnastics beyond anything seen in the Olympics, the two of them came out, they were fitted with IVs, and allowed to repair themselves for the next two or three days. My point, if I have one, <laughs> My point, if I have one, is very simple. That at the basic level of human beings, okay, they weren't doing this because they were Americans, and they weren't doing it on the other side because they were Canadians or Newfoundlanders. They were doing it because they were people. They were human beings. And I, I could tell you much more serious stories of extreme hospitality. That's why it's been made into a play. But the point I want to drive home is that one set of people, and in this case it happened to be economically underdeveloped, not with great resources, not with great sophistication, the opposite of the people that they were hosting. But nonetheless, people to people, they saw the core, they saw what mattered. That's anyone in distress, anyone in anxiety, anyone in a particularly urgent moment of their personal life, and especially a group they're on, that lands in a strange environment, starved of news, worried about relatives, wondering what's next, that's a set of people to whom you give a human response. And even in this unsophisticated backwoods town of, the, of one of the most remote provinces, 
There was something born there that day between the two sets of people that I can tell you honestly continues to this day. Friendships were made in about three to four days that have lasted till now. But the essence of it, the very, very essence of it, is that the identities of the parties concerned was at its most fundamental and only comprehensive level. They saw each other as human beings. One set saw distress and offered hospitality. And the other set saw as great worth, a, a, great, a, a great value in the lives of people who, though not blessed with great material advancement, still had about them those most quintessential characteristics that defined the good life. And I saw it in the eyes of the people as they left. So keep that in mind. There is something beyond narrow caste identities. And there is something fundamental about us all. Now, in the light of what has been going on in the last week and the great hearings uh, on, in Congress about the judgeships, I'll, we'll talk about it particularly later. I just want to do another little turn. I've always been interested... I'll get to them in particular, but I've always been interested in political rhetoric and the idea of parliamentary or congressional wit. Uh, it's not in full abundance these days, but it does serve some purpose to remind you of what in certain other times it was like. If you watched the hearings last week, you might have memorable moments, but in terms of anything dignified or eloquent, you're going to be searching very hard. And I was thinking, for example, and this is commonplace, everyone knows this one, when Gadstone and Disraeli were at each other's throat, they were in perpetual contest. And one time, Disraeli got up to describe, this is fairly long, got up to describe Gladstone. And here's what he said. He said, Mr. Gladstone is a sophistical rhetorician, inebriated by the exuberance of his own verbosity who can at all times command an interminable series of arguments to malign an opponent and to justify himself. Now, it might be in an idiom of a different day, but at least there's some elegance in the venom. John Randolph of Kentucky, another great parliamentarian, but an extremely bitter man, and he once described an opponent of his who was very intelligent, brilliant, scintillating, but it was also very corrupt. Randolph, by the way, incidentally, was described by his own friend as a man so venomous that he should not be let out of doors lest he blight the crops. That was his friend's description. And he described the corrupt politician as he is like a rotten mackerel by moonlight. He shines and stinks, which is pretty elegant. And very, very neat. The other one of Gladstone and Israeli that you may be familiar with is very harsh, so be prepared. They had a big contest, and Israeli and, and Gladstone met out in the lobby. And at that point, Israeli looked up, sorry, Gladstone looked up and said to him, My friend, you will die either on the gallows or of some horrible disease. To which Israeli replied, That depends, my friend on whether I embrace your policies or your mistress. <laughs> Told you it was harsh. There's a lovely, lovely one from Mark Twain, which goes to politics. He said, sometimes I wonder whether the world is being run by very smart people who are putting us on or by imbeciles who really mean it. And again, I'm, I'm only inter interested here in the fact that these things are crafted. One more I'll give you, which has a tincture of vulgarity. It's not too strong for this audience. And it's ascribed to Lyndon Johnston. It's brutal. They're talking about, uh, I think, President Ford. And he said, Gerald Ford is so stupid that he can't pour piss out of a cowboy boot, even if the instructions were written on the heel. <laughs> That's pretty hard. Well, when you look, I, I heard the reason I gave you those things, A, because I hoped that they would be mildly amusing, uh, B, 
to show that in previous times, and up until fairly recently even, when people did have contest, they still held on to at least certain elements of elegance and thought that speech might be cruel, but it gave evidence of pre-thought and thinking and consideration. Now that politics has become something of a circus, 24 hours a day for Twitter and Snapchat and panels and the endless, endless confrontations between one side and the other, driven at the worst possible velocity, something is obviously going. And for all the speculation and all the horror that for most people, or many people, seems to attend the elevation of Donald Trump, I think there's, there's a question worth raising here. Whether Mr. Trump is in himself the agent of all this tumult and decline, or whether, as is my suspicion, that he is a representative of something that he is more symptom, that he is more symptom than disease. It strikes me it's true in Canada, but I do think it's more true in the States, that we have more and more and more driven ourselves to include the idea of how we think and how we act politically as being cardinal in our sense of self. And furthermore, that we subdivide, that if we are participants in a given set of people, either ethnically, politically, ideologically, sexually, there are many other categories, that we seek our political identity in relationship to the particular group to which we belong. And that we therefore, on a partisan question, we therefore exile all but the most central question to partisanship is that which side are we on? And to adopt even the possibility of some rationalism or some easy thought from the other group and to find something in common is a desertion of our basic cause. This gets really strange and funny. We find that even now that it drifts down from legislatures down to particular places. I'll give an example, and this is a radical example because of the extreme that's built in it. But it's an illustration because it made its way. Here in this country about five or six months ago, and this is not a joke and I'm not attending any sarcasm towards anyone in this. It just sounds strange. There was a man here who was transitioning to a woman. This is from the news. And it went to a salon which did Brazilian waxes. And to make it more fraught, the one of the women who worked in that salon was Muslim. And she was forbidden by her faith just that, from even touching a man, let alone uh, other than her husband. So here we have a, an extremely particular situation. One person who I would assume identifies sexually. Another person who identifies, one assumes, by religion. But it's in a very particular narrow space. I mean, the numbers of requests, and I'm not being slanderous, for Brazilian waxes cannot be that tremendously universal a desire. Nonetheless, this thing, at least originally, made its way to the Human Rights Court. Now, here's where I revert back to, I think, the stories that I'm telling you. Is it not strange that something like this, which begins at best as a, com uh, a cosmetic endeavor, somehow in the new age in which we find ourselves, gets so quickly translated into a challenge of rights. I'm not saying there are not rights involved, but I'm saying whatever happened to the kind of instantaneous accommodation that occurs between people when people look at each other as human beings. And that if one person has, without being loud about it, some particular objection to something because of either personal disposition or fail or whatever, that instead of starting to, at the top of the mountain and screaming charters of rights and UN declarations, one of them looked at the other and said, I wonder is there anything else I could do to help you out in this? And vice versa. Oh, if my request is causing you something of a problem, I'm not taking this personally yet until you say something really nasty, but perhaps maybe there are others. Where did it come that the automatic leap 
that the automatic lever is put into this, that, that it becomes instantly charged with all sorts of political and sociological and even philosophical import. And this is one of the areas in which I think at the basic level, the association of one or two characteristics of a person with the whole person is radically changing our politics. We are human beings first. And the other characteristics, which indeed do contribute to our personality, are not the all. I often think in universities, where you have tremendous confusion and contrast these days, and it's because of sexual identity, it's because of cultural identity, it's because of color of skin, it's because of this and that and the other. But is not the first identity on a student campus that of student? When you go into the university, you retain everything else. But is not your primary characteristic that of student? Likewise in politics. You're not this or that because of this or that. You are first a citizen. And it is in the public sphere, the good of your country, the good of your fellows, the good of your family, the good of others with whom you are in contest. That's what occupies the greatest sphere of your brain as a citizen. And so when I look now at the American scene in particular, and when I see over the last 10 years that every possible area of disagreement gets leveraged to its highest extent, I think one of the great curses of our age, and I worked on them, are cable news shows and these unrelenting panels of screeching parrots who can do nothing else but take the most ludicrous or violent position and screw it to its topmost branch. It is irresponsible. The news media have ceded the ground from being the mediators, that's what media means, in the middle, to have become active agents in ramping up the adrenaline on every single contest. And the Supreme Court, this is the one that really, really, really distresses me, the Supreme Court, if there's anything left that participates in the prestige of social approval and is not tainted by this radicalization of partisanship, it should be the Supreme Court. But the Supreme Court is now the occasion of one of the most vicious battles. I don't care what side you're on. And also dismaying and crude battles that you've ever seen. Secondly, it implies, more strongly than you want to admit, that the Supreme Court is not a court of judgment. It implies that if one side gets its candidate, then it wins the judgments. Otherwise, why is there a contest? The implication is unescapable, that it's important that our guy or girl gets on the court, because otherwise, our agenda gets blasted to hell. Well, what's the point of a court if you can tell decisions from the composition of its members just on a D or an R? This is really degrading the institution. So here's the, here's the, the roundup. To a degree I can't at this time because it would take far too long. I cannot exercise. I think the degree to which in celebrity days, in celebrity politics, in 24-hour news, in the modern news association, the idea that we attend to issues, that we issue information, that we encourage civil debate, and most of all, that we do not become agents of our own perspective. We're not in the game. We are the observers and transmitters of the game. But it is undeniable to anyone who knows about the news media that there has been such a wandering from the central principle of cool, neutral transmission of that which is happening. And we are instead into a contest of fake celebrity, the loudest and crudest of panels, and screwing everything up. And that under, underlays another part of it, I'm just mentioning this, is that by fractioning down, by building up the great silos of identity politics, women's politics, men's politics, racial politics, gender politics, ethnic politics, and ever more subgroups, 
Identity politics is a fragmentation of the human personality. Citizenship is your identity in the democracy. That's the superintending one. So if you go back to the case of Gambo, for example, that's why I brought it up. It's, 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 it's not an easy connection, but I think it's a real one. I bet there was a lot of politics in Gambo, and I bet even down in Gambo they know something about American politics. But I know the questions that weren't asked when they came off the plane. No one asked them their position on abortion. No one asked them about gay rights. No one asked them about Republicans and Democrats or this or that. They saw the situation, people in distress and people in need, and they extended, they saw each other as humans. Likewise, in that rather extreme example I've given you about the Brazilian wax, I, I think that other countries where people have such tremendous disadvantage, that don't have our affluence, that don't have the comfort of our laws and institutions, they must look over at us and look at some of the quarrels that we're engaged in. And they must be saying to themselves, you have too much time on your hands, by far. We cannot be continuing to elevate every particular to the level of a national crisis. And I think the abandonment of civility, the abandonment of elegance, the abandonment of great thought in politics is a large function of the fact that we have affluence and we are there. The last thing, quote I will give you is a very short one, and it's, it's probably the best it was ever said. At the end of the Civil War, now there was a friction, there was a contest, and there you could find all the partisanship that you would want. But the president of that day wrote at the end of that, in just a single long sentence, this was Lincoln, and he said, with malice for none, with charity for all, with firmness in the right as God gives us to see the right, let us strive to finish the work we are in, to bind up the nation's wounds, to care for him who shall have borne the battle, and for his widow and his orphan, and to do all which may achieve and cherish a just and lasting peace among ourselves and with all nations. Two things only. The fact that he worked so hard to compose something that in itself almost reads like a prayer after the absolute bloodiest, cruelest, and most painful exchange that any nation state could ever endure, that he went back to the principle, what is in people's hearts, what is in people's souls. That was an extremely elevated moment, and it's a moment, by the way, that has carried the Republic to the south of Canada a long, long way. I'm sure I've overextended my time, and I apologize for that. We have any questions for our speaker? We'd love to hear your thoughts on the relationship between Canada and the U.S., where it is now, and where you see it going. Yeah, it's a very good question. Uh, I'd like to see it better. I'd like to see it was true on both sides of the border. Uh, I'll deal with our crowd first, because it usually gets a pass up here. Uh, I think there's a, there was a, too much made. It's very easy, by the way, to campaign against Trump in Canada. It may be true down in the States. But up here it is the prevailing opinion by, I'd say, about 80%. And I thought that there were a number of moments during the negotiations, I mean, quite straight with you, thought there were a number of moments during the uh, negotiations that were unnecessary. It was unnecessary for our foreign minister uh, to be giving fairly strong, by implication, opinions about the president of the other country. I'm still so old-fashioned, and I'll, I'll hold this, I'm still so old-fashioned that the office... Office retains its dignity. The office is statutory. And when members of one government are referring to another government, they're not referring to people or associates. They're referring just as much to the office. On our side, I think it was too easy to play the card that can get, oh, we're standing up to Trump and we're going to stop that bully Trump. Uh, that's adolescent showboating. And I think it probably delayed. I don't know the results of the agreement. We haven't seen it yet. On the other side, uh, Mr. Trump, uh, as I said, he comes with his own uh, China shop. But it, there's been enough evidence that he conducts himself in the most, let me be kind, the most effervescent, 
fashion that is humanly possible at every given second. And given some of the style of his, both his rhetoric and his method of proceeding, I'm always dazzled by the fact that it still keeps coming as a surprise. <laughs> really. If he were to walk up and read a, the equivalent of a second inaugural address, then I think we should have headlines. But if he takes another smack at Christopher Friedland, we should say, well, business as usual. Uh, three things. I think between us and the States, Canada and the States, that the relationship that I was hinting at even in my own work with the base, I'd like to see these two countries closer. Now that's a radical in Canada because you're selling out to the Americans. I think we do have collective understanding. I do have in, in, in many ways, I think we have collective cultural patterns. Uh, the fact that we send the few people in Canada that are funny, and we have a lot less funny people here than we think we do. Uh, some of them are on CBC, and I haven't laughed in a year. Uh, we send all the good ones down there. Uh, we should keep them up here. Uh, I'd like to see more, less of this damn friction, less of the damn condescension. The endeavors of the West, let me go to another point. The endeavors of the West, the industrialization age, the age you're living in now is the age of true miracles. Every, every generation thinks it's in a new age. This is new in a quantum sense. From 1960 to now, it is, it is inconceivable the things that have changed, driven mainly by the power of computer and invention. Such a world as we've never seen. And one of the reasons that I think that we have this pettiness I wasn't making a joke in politics and this almost artificial continuous anger. Are they really angry or is this theater? I think it is because the West is the only polity that has both the security, the institutions, the affluence to be able to waste so much time. In Canada, by the way, to you Americans, we can't, we can't get along with ourselves. We just signed a free trade agreement with you, but there's no free trade in Canada. There was a guy in Quebec went down to New Brunswick with two cases of beer and six bottles of wine. He got arrested. You know, we haven't fixed after what was it, 1867 that you can't take a case of beer from one province to another. We have, we have a contest between uh, Alberta and British Columbia. One province is an oil province and the other province is part of the Amazon Valley, and there's no way that the two of them can oblige the product of the other. I mean, really. But between the U.S. and us, I think at a population level, which is what I was stressing, I think the citizens of both of these countries are in so many ways alike. And I think that human nature spreads basically the same sets and patterns of virtues and vices everywhere. But I do think we have a lot in common, and I think our united energies, not distracted by petty difference, could do us a whole world of good. Now, in the meantime, while, as I say, Mr. Trump is, is volatile, our own prime minister, you know, has a tendency to kind of lurk near the spotlight, too. Uh, no virtue is all on one side, and no lunacy either. So I'd like to see a bit more, draw that back, find common purpose. Do th Here, it's a little footnote. In the great oil controversy in this country, I, I visited Fort McMurray last week, and I learned that the largest single investment in the Northern Isles oil sands by an aboriginal nation is up to 1.5 billion. Now these are supposed to be the representatives of the most desperate communities in Canada. And what I found also was that by engaging with the project, and they did it on tough grounds, the two parties that we have such difficulty, as we say, reconciling, Engage in common projects is a way you get to meet people. Rhetoric solves nothing. Common enterprise can be a way to wipe away tremendous layers of predisposition and prejudice. To wrap it up, I think the U.S. and Canada are bound, bound by our geographic location, by the inclinations of both taste and history. And... If we, if we seek to find the frictions between us, we're making both parties a little smaller.
Great answer. Any, any other comments? Thanks, Rex. Thank you. Those were great remarks. Um, at breakfast this morning, myself and Dale were talking about very similar things, including your observations about journalists on both sides, about the Civil War, yeah. about the 60s in the United States, and I express a concern that I don't see where this is going, including states perhaps trying to secede yeah. from our union. Yeah. If it doesn't stop and it keeps escalating in 20 years, yeah. I don't know what it is. I don't know if I'm nuts or not, but you have greater insight than I have. I love the things that you've pointed out. Do you see how this is going to end? I read, again, uh, who am I? I'm no one. And my opinion is not better. I'm not being coy. But this is all I've done is watch stuff. And I don't have particular analytic powers. Uh, I've only got experience. But I seriously, seriously, seriously believe that we are playing. It's a kind of fire. It's not even hot, so we don't feel it. But the divisions, the depth of rancor, they retreat into ever more subgroups. And, and the, the hostility to the endeavors that have made us what we are your children, those of you who are of an age to have children, and those of the generation past, you could always, you got up in the morning 20 years ago and looked at Johnny or Sheila and said, hey, you know, I think hmm, maybe, you know, she's seven or eight now. When she's about 18, you know, she might want to go off to UBC or she might want to go off to Amsterdam and do some study over there. And someone else would say, well, you know, when he's 15 or 16, I think all signs are... What you were saying was, with such casualness, you don't even breathe it. Oh, you were saying that you have a hold on the future that you don't even have to question. You can start, you can talk in the West about five years from now and ten years from now with perfect confidence. And the projections you can make for your children are what they might be doing or what field they might study. Do, you, do we ever in the West... Do we ever remember that maybe for two-thirds of the globe, even saying tomorrow is a leap of faith in the countries that are war-torn, that are ridden with famine, that are totalitarian in nature, North Korea where you can get set off for 20 years to the dungeons of hell. We're exempt from all of that. Even disasters don't hit over here. The tsunami, the first one in Indonesia, that was biblical calamity. If we have 10, and God forbid we do, it's day and night. Do we know how exempt we are from so much of what is terrible and the ability to speak in future tenses of our loved ones and everything? There are mothers now who do not know where the meal for the baby is coming tomorrow morning. Well, what's the point of that? The point is, if we have achieved, and it hasn't fallen from heaven, there have been four, five, six, and seven generations. It wasn't always like this. It wasn't like in Newfoundland, I'll tell you. That you got hospitals, you got schools, you got banks, you have financial institutions, you have security forces. That allows you to be you and plan what you plan, do what you do. But we have become so damn casual about it. We think this is our right. It isn't a right. It's something that was built, and we have to in strengthen, enhance, and extend it. But the self-indulgence that allows us in many ways to kind of spit at our own inheritance is, is warping the confidence and the steely-mindedness necessary to preserve what we have, the good things, and to extend them further. I remember an interview with uh, Ayan Hirsi Ali, who came from a Muslim society where she was to be married off, she fled. And she, I won't go into all of it, she endured tremendous sacrifices, great fear. Her, her friend at one point was stabbed right in the chest and a note pinned to his chest with the knife saying that she was the one at fault. She did an interview up here in Canada where someone was saying, oh, you're, you're a radical, you're anti-this and anti-that. And she had a great line. I think it was so true. She, she looked at the North American. He never had clitorectomy. Could have used it. He never had clitorectomy. He never had to marry someone that his parents told him he had to marry. And he was making fun of her. 
And all, he, all she said back to him was this. She said, you grew up. You grew up in the democracy. You grew up in liberty. You can afford to spit on liberty. I don't think we spit on liberty, but I think we're very, very unconscious of just how damn good we have it. And therefore, we allow our pettiness to turn us tribal and factional. Common elements, the humanity of us all. That stuff which is the best in us should unite sexually, ethnically. It doesn't matter. But we're making these the touchstones of our entire existence when both our history, our commonality, the things we've done together, the prosperity. Don't be shy of the word. You would not wish to live in a world 100 years ago. And we are mindless of the blaze that technology has opened up for the potential of human endeavor. Uh, that's not Pollyanna. I think that's just fact. Obviously, I, I can't answer anything without extending it into the next day. So one more. I one, warn you, don't ask any more questions. One, one, one more. Just one, okay, more. one more. And it's, maybe it's out in left field, and I admit coming from a white, privileged California background, so maybe it's a skewed view of life. No hope for you. No hope. Right. I'm, I am deeply troubled that universities are trade schools now and that liberal education is perceived as a joke. I know. And it really upsets me. I think that kids come out and they're learning a trade, but they don't know history. They don't understand life. They can't communicate effectively. They can't analyze, criticize problems in a civilized way. I'm really disturbed by that. I was just curious your take. You really don't want to get me started on it. Okay. All right. Sorry. No, you really don't. I tell you, I, I, I'm a flippant bastard. But if I got one or two honest things in my bones, I came from a hard spot. No big deal. But the one thing, no books in the house even when I was growing up, after Reader's Digest Condensed, which are debatable as books, uh, the idea of a university was planted by my old man. He got as far as grade two. And my mother, much stronger person, got to grade 10, but when she, and had music in her bones, could play anything, smart, knew Latin. But she had to be taken out of school because there were nine daughters didn't know her. So she took care of the other nine as they went. The, the last three got to university. My mother, being the oldest, essentially became the, the proxy mother for the young ones growing up. So I give you that only for this reason, that these were two people, one from extreme deprivation of education and one from an amputated education. And they, they, they worshipped it. I mean, they really did. And when I went to university, I went young, but I, I thought I was going into some sort of Elysium where you went to the library and people were playing Beethoven's last quartets and, and arm wrestling over Socrates' latest meditation. Did I wake up? It wasn't that. But at least there was some regularity that, that the, as Matthew Arnold said, the best that has been thought and expressed, the, the, the harvest, the harvest of our finest minds as a species over time, there are milestones in everything, in music, in art, in how to deal with each other, in relationships even. There are masterpieces in relationship. But there are summits, be it a Euler or a Godel or an Einstein or a Newton, Rembrandt or Michelangelo or Beethoven. And this is, a, this is our collective inheritance, but it, it's not just a decoration. It is something that structures the way the mind receives things. You don't hear the 40th symphony or the 5th and just hear a wall of sound if you let it in. You don't read Lear or Moby Dick just because it's a fable. There is something in the discrimination and nuance of words so orchestrated in such an order that adds a dimension to your sensibility that then magnifies your ability to act as a human being. But when education gets tossed over to the, to the grotesque frivolities of ideological cant and useless information. This is a sacrilege. But I've, I've lost my glorification, my idealization of the humanity. If it were not for the sciences, I'd shut the whole place down. <laughs> Seriously. They're not only not educating, they're anti-educating. They're stocking minds with prefabricated points of view. The only point of a university is to liberate the mind to know how to think, judge, and search.
And if we, this is where we will fail. If other civilizations, if other countries, India, China, Russia, if they do become the governors of this world, it will be because with all of our affluence and all of our great institutions, we have allowed instruction, the training of the human mind, to become something of a travesty. I could go on on that one for weeks. Thank you very much. Thanks, everyone, for listening to this edition of Employment Matters. This podcast is brought to you by the Employment Law Alliance, the world's largest and most prestigious network of labor and employment lawyers from the best law firms in the world. For more information about the ELA or to contact the member firm in your jurisdiction, visit us on the web at ela.law or follow us on Twitter at ELA Global. By registering on our website, you can gain access to our ongoing library of webinars, podcasts, videos, white papers, and surveys, as well as the ELA's Global Employer Handbook. Employment Matters is a product of the ELA, all rights reserved. Any duplication or distribution of this content without express permission is prohibited.